This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Hi, everybody. I'm Scott. Hi, I'm Jesse. Hi, I'm Paul. And we're going to talk about the fifth head of Cerebus. 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 Okay. Cerebus. Yeah, Cerberus. Cerberus. Okay. Uh, yeah, the, by n- the novella, though, not the whole book, because Jesse didn't read the whole book. What? Maybe what? by accident. That's insanity. Maybe no. by accident, maybe on purpose. We'll never yeah. really know. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was that, there. Yeah, we will never I don't know. know. We will never know. I was that there, and Wolfian. I do not know. Yeah, but that's a... <laughs> I've read it That's one funny. time. That is very Wolfian. Well done. <laughs> I read it one time, and I'm pretty sure I understand it completely. Uh, <laughs> what? Yep. Then you haven't read it carefully uh-huh. enough, I think. And uh, I, I noticed yeah, that. So a l- let's let's talk about the story real quick. I mean, uh, so the Fifth Head of Cerberus is a novella mm-hmm. that Gene Wolfe published originally in Orbit Ten. Mm-hmm. Uh, edited by Damon Knight, right? I think so. Yeah. In uh, 1972. Mm-hmm. But then he wrote two other novellas that, to my knowledge, did not appear anywhere else. And then um, the book came out. The book, The Fifth Head of Cerberus, came out with all three of the stories. And all three of the novellas are uh, intimately connected. Right. Make one. I've heard that. Well, I, I wouldn't call it. Would you call it a novel? Well, that's. It's not a fix up. It says self, like same a, titled novel published a couple of months later. Okay, um, so they're calling it a novel. Yeah. Well, I I think that that may be a marketing term as well, because hmm. uh, okay. it, it, it it fits the fix up just as perfectly well. I think uh, people don't like the word fix up, and they like the word novel. So. Uh-huh. It, well, a fix it, up implies that he took the short stories and changed them somehow to make them into a novel. Yeah. You know what I mean? It does. But that's not what he did here. That's not what he did. Okay. Here. Well, I haven't read those others. So there's a story called v- VRT, and mm-hmm. another one supposedly oh, written by one of the characters in the first novella, the one I read. Right. Yeah. Right. Okay. And then. Yeah. So we'll focus on the first novella. Um, right. But I feel, and I, I'm sure Paul would agree that. To fully understand what's going on in the first one, you need the other two. <laughs> I, 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 I do agree that one the one is incomplete without the other two, and that's the case of all three novellas. You need them all together to try to unlock what Wolf is doing in these book in these well, stories. Having read only the the novella, I completely disagree. <laughs> okay. Well then. No. Well, um, yeah. Um, yeah. Well, no, I, I, can I, understand, I think it stands, I understand I think what it stands you're saying. very well yeah. on its own. Um, yes. Okay. And I was thinking about, you know, in my error or on purpose mistake um, planning for this, I was thinking, oh, actually, maybe it's a good thing the other guys have read uh, the uh, the entire book because they can say, well, that's contradicted by whatever later on um, in in the book because this is the first novella. It's the first written, presumably, um, right. mm-hmm. and perhaps it inspires stuff. But uh, I. I remember when Scott and I started this podcast many, many moons ago, we we disagreed about many things, but one thing we 100% agreed on, that novella was the perfect length for any science fiction work. And this is a pretty amazingly dense uh, science fiction fantasy story, 
and I think it works pretty damn well on its own. So I don't think it I think we to... I think we also agreed right. on the fact that we read things in publication order. Yeah, yeah, I think. Am I right on yeah, that? One? I think so. I, if <laughs> right. not, I agree now. <laughs> uh, I, th- it's I think old home week sense. here on the podcast. <laughs> yeah, like uh, Ender. You know, you don't read Ender's Shadow first, uh, even right. though it's it's set in the same period as Ender's Game. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, makes sense. Yep. Um, I, I want to point out I did do a little bit of um, cheating. I listened to a podcast called Alizabo Soup. I believe that's how it's mm-hmm. pronounced. Yes. Oh, yeah. I've, I've listened podcast. to that, too. And, yeah. I haven't listened they to the whole terrific. thing, but they they seem to be exclusively Gene Wolfe. Is that is that their story? Um, yeah. Well, they said in one of their podcasts that they, I don't think it's going to be exclusive Gene Wolfe. I think... Uh, they listed some things that they were going to do in the future, and I can't remember all of them, but some of them were not Gene Wolfe. But they are going to do Book of the New Sun, okay. which I am looking forward to. I'm going yeah, to follow yeah. along with them. Absolutely. Yeah. Nice. Um, so on this on this particular book, they did something like five episodes for each novella. So it's like five hours of discussion poof. for each novella in this Oh, we'll be able to condense that down into... Absolutely. uh, We'll distill it. Um, (laughs) But I enjoyed it. I I haven't listened to all of it, but I enjoyed uh, what I heard very much. I I don't know if everybody else in the universe has made these connections, but having just read the one thing by Gene Wolfe ever, and read it just the one time, I must insist that uh, Wolfe was definitely a fan of a guy named uh, Jorge Luis Borges. Um, yeah. because he yeah. basically said, I like what that guy's doing. And then he sort of did his own version of it. Um, and it's, it's, you can feel that it's not Borges, but it's so Borges in many respects. And then the other one that I thought, you know, somebody else read uh, this guy and sort of said, I'm going to do me some of that is, um, uh, George R. R. Martin, who, uh, people probably, would accuse having ripped off, I don't know, Lord of the Rings or something. Um, but I think I've read Martin. Um, his writing style is actually fairly similar to Wolf's in a certain sense. Mm. And uh, in what is a Song of Ice and Fire, what I've read of it, um, he he has a depth of um, letting the reader do a lot of the heavy lifting in terms of um, what. What are we to take away from this? And uh, the sort of the... It's not so much the unreliable narrator uh, in in A Song of Ice and Fire as much as it is... Uh, um, he doesn't tell you what to think about it. And uh, But uh, on the other hand, the circumstances are... This is all... It's almost a fantasy novel, isn't it? Or novella? There's very little to connect um, well, it to no, science I, fiction. I think it's science fiction. I mean, we've Other talked than, before about you know what what are we tried to think of some great clone stories. Yeah, it's a cloning novel. And this is definitely yeah. one of them. Yeah, but I I think it's science fiction. I'd, um, I'd, you know, I'd say this. But, I'd say the second one is fantasy. Sure. Yeah. Because because that's really a a myth, really more than anything else. But Agreed. Jesse didn't read that one. No. Right. But the um yeah in Fifth Head it's like um. You know, like Jack Vance and uh, Gene mm, Wolfe are kind of famous for their uh, 
I, I can't remember what they call it, but it's the far future. It's so far in the future that science is kind of magic. Right. Because they've lost all it, this. It, it, it's, yeah, the dying earth subgenre. Yeah, the dying earth stuff. Right. And that's what um, the Book of the New Sun is part of, you know, that mm-hmm. genre. This is kind of similar in that there has been a great deal of time that has passed since this stuff has been established. Um, but I don't think that there's any magic going on, you know, in this story. Oh, really? No. I would say the sentences are full of magic, Scott. <laughs> oh. I, I, I seriously, right, I mean, I oh, it's very, very meta, right? Agreed. So, yeah. like, what's the title mean? Uh, never explained in the novella. Um, one theory I've got is that we're the fifth head, right? The reader is the fifth head, which is interesting. Um, but I, I think there's other ways of interpreting it, too, and they're all equally valid because it doesn't. Um, well, they are all equally arguable, anyways, because it, it doesn't come down on one side or the other. Um, there was a great quote I, I found on on the Black Gate. Did you guys see that? I tweeted it at you. Yeah, I did. Mm-hmm. Um, something like, uh, this story is a combination lock that allows for many different combinations to be uh, unlocked and give different answers. And thinking about how there's so much info dumping that doesn't feel like info dumping, but how they can all... I mean, I, I want, uh, very early on in the novel, or novella, I, I was like, okay, somebody's a clone of somebody else here, I'm pretty sure. Or, if not a clone, like a, a, a mirror or a part of their imagination. And I, I got that paid off, I think, fairly... I'm pretty sure that that's going on. <laughs> I mean, it's mm-hmm. sort of explicitly stated at some points, sort of, but we've got an unreliable yep. narrator. And that's 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 really good when when the reader's doing a lot of the heavy lifting in terms of figuring out what's going on and what the facts are. That's that's a really good sign. Yeah, and I think that that if you were going to point at something and say this is Wolfian, this is Gene Wolfe's thing, mm-hmm. it's that narrator, you know, speaking in first person that may or may not be reliable. Mm-hmm. You know, he's got stories in which you know the the narrator claims to have perfect memory. Right, and he's got stories in which uh, the narrator claims to have no memory at all of uh, his past. Um, but this this idea of the narrator telling you a story and being influenced by his own views and stuff is definitely Gene Wolfe. So one of the, one of the things that happens is we find out fairly quickly that uh, the narrator is narrating this story uh, from a position of looking back and trying to remember the details so i don't think we've got an explicit uh claim of perfect memory however his memory is pretty darn good um he can remember a lot of details it's it's a consistent memory doesn't necessarily mean it's perfect or accurate it he 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 recalls details but are those details how accurate are those details or is he just conjuring them up Mm -hmm. He he makes them a holistic whole but what is it, what is he really manufacturing? What is he actually remembering? So how many how many characters have we got? This is a good question. I, I want somebody to enumerate uh, their theory as to how many how many characters, a how many personalities, how many characters there are. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So let's say so let's let's count them up. We have the narrator, aka the only name we're given for him really is number five. Although I've seen some weird theories about his what his real name is. Right. Like like I saw one um, that it, it was Gene Wolfe. 
Well, that kind of makes sense. Because yeah, it does, we're doesn't in it? The house, house, house of the dog, Gene for like clones. Right. French sort of thing. It, it weirdly makes sense. And that would be a very Wolfian thing to basically encode your own name without actually stating it as the name of your character. Mm-hmm. So we have, we have him. We have the father. We have the brother, quote, unquote, brother, quote, unquote, brother. David. David. Um, we have we have the aunt. We have the lady in pink. We have the Is the fake. aunt different from the lady in pink? I think so. Because okay. because 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 uh, number five doesn't recognize the aunt as the lady in pink when he finally meets the aunt. We have the fake cl- we have the other clone in the warehouse. Oh, is that really count as a character the or four armed really? the four armed dude? Yeah. Yeah, so that that's this, this, I I, uh, I think that that at least counts as possibly a character. So yeah, you're you're mis- you're forgetting the robot. Um. Oh yeah. Yes. I'm 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 forgetting the automaton, Mister uh, Millions. Mm-hmm. Um. We also have a uh, we have also have Marsh who shows up, who wind up being the narrator of the second story and is discussed in the third. Um, See, is he the um? Is he the the, uh, the anthropologist? Yes, but he's come to the brothel, right? <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. he's, yep. he's, he's come. He's come. To, he's come to the house of the, of the dog. Yeah. So I also liked, like, um, uh, yeah, in thinking about like uh, how how it's revealed, right? So we're told right away that he's in prison. Uh, well, he has been in prison, but we sort of forget about that, and he yet he drops that line a few few spots within. Um, and then we ultimately find out how he ended up in prison. Um, but that's the only complete arc, I think, that we get for any of the characters. We have to infer the rest of them, is that right? At least in this original? At least in this original, um, yes. That's the only complete arc we get. Every, everybody else, especially Mr. Marsh, is kind of like fragments. Although, although, uh, although, although we can infer the death of his father... Right, so uh, I mean, I, I was I was thinking, oh, okay, it's Gene. So, so we get Gene so Wolfe's going to get if end. he's a filmmaker, he's going to get Christopher Nolan to do the uh, oh god, yes. right? Um, if if yes, if the Fifth Head of Cerebus were to be made into a film, Christopher Nolan should direct it. End of story. Right. <laughs> Absolutely, I would so watch that. Is there a uh, is is there any character we're missing that is really important? Scott, I can't think of one. I'm, I kind of followed along there. Okay. Uh, but I'm, I'm not sure where you're headed with this, so I'll just let you go. Well, uh, no, I'm just uh, I'm not 100 percent sure yet either. Although I'm sure mm-hmm. I will find the answer within the bounds of this podcast, um, mm-hmm. because it must be here because it's a complete work, right? Or it will be. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So, um, you know, Mr. Million and Number Five. And Maitre um, are all the same person. Yeah, they're or, all clones or, of the or same. At least, yeah, some so, variation. Yeah, I, I say Mr. Million. Yeah. Mr. Million as well. Yeah. So what? One of the one of the things that I, I clued onto right away as this is going to be something about, you know, who is this person and what is their relationship. Uh, pretty early on, I was convinced that something something was hinkier hokey or odd when uh, we find out that there's a library in the house and that and all the books in the library have been written by 
the the father character. Ostensibly. Well, I, I well, think part it, of his part of his library, not the whole thing, right? Because he goes to a certain section of the library to look for the things his father wrote, and he's in the W. No, that's that's the public library, right? Not the right. Not his well, private well, yeah, library. Okay. Right. Well, I'm, the lady in pink tells the narrator that every book in that library was written by his father. That's whether she's telling the truth or not. We don't know. Well, let's but assume yeah, for for a moment that it's true. So, and so that's then what, he goes to the. Well, that, then he goes to the public library to look for his father's work, and he goes to the W's, which is part of the evidence for yeah, that the uh, the family name is Wolf here. You know, it's yeah. very cool, and and I'm sure this has occurred to you guys already, but um, the fifth head of Cerberus by Gene Wolf, right? And then the next story is called A Story by John V. Marsh, and if number five's name is Gene Wolf, that is meta and v. quite awesome. Actually, it's very very <laughs> meta. Yeah. It's really cool. Well, uh, I, I want to explain to you my thought process when I found uh, when we find out that every book in the in the father's library is written by the father. Uh-huh. So as soon as I heard that, I'm like, well, it, yeah, it could be unreliable narrator, of course, but I that's not what I you know. If you tell me you, you're the a Nigerian prince, I believe you until I think about it for a minute, right? Because I'm presented with facts. They come in through my ears in this case, and then I whoa 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 really, so that's what happened. I said, wow, this guy must be really old, <laughs> having had time to write all those books. And of course, the answer is he is really old, <laughs> right? Um, which version, which body actually did all the typing, <laughs> all the writing, all the research, um, and then Agreed. and then when the kid. Uh, five is doing his his uh dissertations you know daily dissertations with and against his brother and with mr millions um this is he's basically doing research the father insisted that he study particular subjects right i'm thinking these are subjects that are to be filled in in the library right he's kind of it's very uh, (laughs) there's there's where the the labyrinths start, right, is with the the stacks and climbing the stacks. That's very um, Jorge Luis Borges. Yeah, it's and, very Library Babel. Right, and the Library Babel is, you know, it's full of librarians and all the books ever written, right? So how how, how this is this is the thing, you know, one thing we know about readers is they like books. That's the only thing we really know. We don't know if they like mm-hmm. music or tacos. But they, we do know they like <laughs> they like books, um, yeah. and so when you have this as the background, and of course writers are readers too, you have this as the background. One one ultimate desire you don't know whether your reader's gay or straight. You don't know almost anything about your reader, but what what one thing you do know is they love reading, and the ultimate fantasy really is the library, right? It's the place where all all the stories are found, and all, all the possibilities of discovery can be found. And, and we don't all have time to read all the books we want. Or um, if we did, how could we get that, right? Well, one way, you could, if you have enough time, you could clone yourself and write all the books. And if you're just a reader, you could clone yourself and read all the books. 
Right? But that so, doesn't do any good at all. <laughs> well, uh, it's a good question. Uh, does it or doesn't it? What, what, what's, mm-hmm. the, what's the father doing with his uh, late night interrogations under hypnotherapy or, or what, whatever? What's going on there? Yeah, what, what is he doing? Um, it's like he's studying himself. Who knows why? Uh, maybe to try and figure out how to extend his life or how to, uh, uh, I don't know, psychoanalyze himself. Is he downloading? It's, it's very, it's very, very odd. But yeah, start studying, studying his clone gene progeny's humanity. Well, that, a- I, 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 I kept as I, as I was listening as I was listening to this, I, I kept thinking of uh, Camp Boyd tests. Boyd comp test. Yeah. Um, From to check, uh, to, check to, see, yeah. His, to check to see if he's uh, human. Doesn't the father know whether his son is a clone well, or not? Well, well, yeah, but is a clone is is a clone a real human being? And not to well, that's certainly whole, a question in the in the novella, right? That that's sort of lurking in the background is what what makes a human a human being? What makes the these artifacts real artifacts? Right, uh, and that 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 starts extending out into the other two novellas when we start really getting into Bale's hypothesis. And I'm going to ask you this, Jesse. Mm-hmm. I mean, you've only read the first novella, so mm-hmm. do you think Bale's hypothesis is true or not? Uh, well, uh, I believe there's a nice quote in the book about how to answer that question. You stumble for time, right? At first, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> you argue the that the your opponent is uh, using uh, ad hominem attacks, which of course makes you <laughs> a human, since an ad hominem attack is to a human, and therefore the question is broken. <laughs> um, I want to I want to point to uh, Robert Reed's story. I'm sure Scott, you read this at some point because I read it and I must have told you gotta read this story. Uh, mm-hmm. Great, infi- done by Infinivox a million years ago um, as an audiobook. Uh, mm-hmm. Robert Reed's Guest of Honor. You know this story? Do you remember this one? I I recall it vaguely, so okay. I'm gonna need help. So Guest of Honor uh, comes from, I'm sure the title comes from all the science fiction conventions that Robert Reed has attended. And, you know, Mm -hmm. at a science fiction convention, there's typically a Guest of Honor. Some some luminary of the written word that gets invited and, you know, gets to have dinner and everybody comes and says, yay, yay, cheers to you. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's sort of a celebrity uh, writer. Um, well, this great Robert Reed story is kind of a cloning story too. Now that I think about it, and I guess I guess our complaint was there was no cloning novel, and maybe since I oh maybe that was one, it. We, yeah, I remember we were trying to no think of the quintessential story. cloning novel, and right. we couldn't come up with one. Yeah, because yeah. you know, H.G. Wells never wrote it, so it clearly is not a thing, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> but in Robert Reed's short story, or maybe it's a novelette. Um, we find uh, the main character has been invited to dinner at a uh, on Earth after many uh, decades in space, having traveled to many planets in the universe. Um, it they suffer from uh, relativistic speed uh, travel, so they have to I don't know go into hypersleep and right they can't travel faster than light, so. Um, when the main character is guested at this dinner, we find out that um, the reason she is guest of honor is because she has genes from all the people who are attending the convention. 
Oh, uh, yes. And, I remember now. Yep. And then... Good story. Way and, to go Infinibox, by the way. Absolutely. Thumbs up for them. Yeah. Absolutely. And and then we find out even better that uh, at this uh, Guest of Honor dinner, um, that the main character is the uh, thing to be dined upon. <laughs> um, they are going to take her apart and parcel out all her memories to the guests who will now now that they live in a future in which you know everybody's immortal um as long as they don't get physically injured they can have experiences and claim experiences uh that would otherwise put them in danger um so they get to have experiences of traveling to other worlds and and doing all the dangerous you know space flight that otherwise wouldn't so uh, thinking about it that way uh what what's the father doing in this story um he could be downloading right (laughs) this kid of his that's sort of his own himself in many respects but with a kid's brain and able to soak up like a kid soaks up things right Mm -hmm. um he could be copying that out um sort of a selfish way of being able to read three books at the same time you know you're reading the book you're reading and your kids are reading two other books and you soak up those those kids but this makes me uh, sort of the thing that I was wondering the whole time is and why why I was asking how many characters there are is I don't think that David is one of the clones am I right No he's, the, no, he's definitely he's, not he's, Yeah he's like a, he's like a natural son uh, a right. son uh, you know, brought about naturally right yes. not a clone yeah. Right and and he he gets the late night sessions too, uh, but he doesn't end up um, eating himself in a certain sense, right? He escapes he, in a certain sense. Yeah, he he's not he's not given a strange he's not given a second name. He's definitely different and treated differently than number five is. But he also he he has yeah. a different attitude. Right. So I mean, this is all uh, theory and conjecture, correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because um, you know, I, I don't know. In my head, uh, my thoughts are that it's nothing more. You know how people do personality tests and things to kind of get insight on themselves. I think that somehow he is trying to gain insight into himself by having a clone kid to kind of experiment on. And my my evidence for that is that he's clearly cloned a lot and had a lot of what you'd call failures or, you know, he would call failures because he was giving them to uh, the slave trade. Right. Right. Well, so he's he's doing it a lot, but he's only keeping certain a uh, one really. Right. It was like this is a success. And, um, I'm, I'm not I'm not 100% sure that I know that as much as I, I would say that cloning did take place. So right, when, yeah. when, when the kid sees uh, a slave who looks like him um, at the slave market, uh, and then he sees himself in a four-armed guy, again, four arms uh, as opposed to five heads, so maybe, um, there's some evidence that the, that the society has cloning in the background, right? Rather than just like it might be that the only cloner on the planet is is uh, the main character and his genetic clones, um, but it, maybe everybody's doing it. 
Yeah, I didn't get that impression, but again, this is only, I have no idea how to defend it. Um, I got the impression that he was doing some very um, questionable things in that house. Um, you know, it's a brothel. I mean, it's a brothel, but he was doing stuff with the women as well. It's also a Frankensteinian lab for, for the kids. Exactly. Yep. So, I mean, things, and when I say doing stuff with the women, I mean that he's doing stuff like to prolong their life or to uh, enhance, enhance them, certain yeah. capabilities, right? Mm-hmm. So he's he's just, he's like a... Um, Oh, what's that? H.G. Wells. Why is it giving a blank? Dr. Moreau. Dr. Moreau, right. So he's Dr. Moreau, but on humans, right? I was going to say uh, like Lord Littlefinger from uh, Game of Thrones, um, <laughs> right? He's got uh, he's got uh, his tentacles, uh, or I guess uh, like Ver- Lord Varos as well, right? He's got his his inform his power is information. He's got all these people coming to his his brothel to make um genetic variation right um the mm. fact that he's his two sons are from different mothers technically one of them may may not have had a mother in a certain sense right so there's all sorts of play with with what like what the kids doing with the frogs um he's cloning them essentially right he's he's experimenting with all the different ways of living uh and making life so it's very very jorge luis borges in that a lot of the there's mirrors right and labyrinths and i don't think we're on firm ground in saying any one fact is true other than this sentence is on page whatever Um, i agree with that statement yeah absolutely so uh, in thinking about why he lives in a brothel um I think there's no one answer, but well, the, the answer is he's financing it, right? Because at the end, at the end, that's sort of said by, you know, I don't know if we reveal the end or not, but um, number five needs money, and that's how he gets it. He gets back to his uh, ability to do things. Well, his father used to deal in uh, in slaves as well, right? Right, right. And but, so, yeah, but he, number he's, five, number five got his money by running the brothel. He kicked it back on and right. and was able to run it. And now he's able to do what his dad did, basically endless cycle. Right. Um, and so that's where the sort of Greek tragedy elements come in, right? Yeah. You yeah. you uh, don't want to marry your mom and <laughs> kill your dad, but unfortunately, that's how the prophecy goes. And you know. Uh, genes are destiny. <laughs> so he has to keep <laughs> killing himself over and over again, and um, and yet his brother uh, David escapes, right? Mm-hmm. He escapes the 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 trap, the and cycle. I, yeah. I, I mean, it might be a. It's funny because I, I I don't expect a lot of people to be making the connections to Game of Thrones, but I I've been thinking about how Game of Thrones and Song of Ice and Fire has a lot of. Um, like one one of the things that has a lot of is uh, castrated folks, <laughs> right? People Unix, who yeah. who don't have uh, the ability to reproduce themselves in the normal sense. And it also has uh, it has a, a brothel, of course, but also has um, uh, a lot of incest, which is a kind of cloning in a certain sense, um, trying to keep a bloodline or a gene line 
or some aspect, you know, like that. And um, that's pretty interesting. In it, I don't know how much George R. R. Martin took from from Gene Wolfe, but I do know that he's read Gene Wolfe, and probably was as impressed because I, I remember reading like stories like Night Flyers by Martin and Sand Kings, and he's got that hardness that you find in Game of Thrones, um, and th- that hardness is not explicitly stated here but the world in which the narrator is describing is is equally if not more horrific than anything in George R. R. Martin it's just sort of not shown in the narrative right with the with yeah, the amount of slavery and murder and all the the uh, you know well, the there's even the a, there's are... even a, a higher point than that I mean and even something more horrible I mean it's the this colonization thing where you you're assuming that the aborigine or the original inhabitants of this planet are not really intelligent and not worthy of our um, attention. Right. And in fact, we kill them right with the excuses saying, well, they're not, they're not intelligent anyway. They're just animals so they can move aside for us. (laughs) Yeah. Right. That's, that's the thing. That's the, the, even the higher one. Right. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that I think that theme of colonialism and what what, what about the over, overwhelming indigenous natives on both planets is something that goes through all three novellas. But here in the first one, it's just like taking for granted. Oh yeah, we just moved in and the Aborigines died off. I know you didn't read the 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 third novella, Jesse, but the third novella really is about well. When did the Aborigines die out? How do we know about this? What, what information can we glean that are, that's still existing? This echoes all the way back to the first one, where we get those plastic replica, replicas of Aborigine tools. And mm-hmm. what what go to the plastic replicas? What, what what do they tell us? They themselves are clones of the original stone tools that the Aborigines had. And then there's also discussion and. I think it's in the second or third one that the Aborigines weren't even that advanced. They were pre stone tool culture. And, but are they still human? Did they, is Vale's hypothesis correct? And did they just assume the, the local population and just forget that they were Aborigines? And does it matter if these humans are the Aborigines or not? Does it? These are good questions. These these are good questions, and we don't know the answer. I mean, the only person in this in these three novellas that we know is definitively from Earth is Marsh, mm-hmm. at least a version of Marsh. Because <laughs> here 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 we go here we go again. I'm sorry, Jesse. I'm, I'm diving into the other two novellas. It's maybe not fair. It there is some question in the third one where that Marsh is been replaced by an Aborigine at one point. Mm-hmm. Hey, Paul, you know, um, in talking about this, I just think I, I realized something that I had missed. What? Um, in the prison stuff, you know, where they're sending messages back and forth. Oh, yeah. Is the he tapping. sending messages to number five? If number five is in the prison at the same time, then yes. Isn't that something? Mm-hmm. I, that is that. Like, that, that I got to look for evidence of that because it just occurred to me and I'm like, oh, my gosh, it's just awesome. Because yeah. so they're communicating in that prison with the taps. <clears throat> and I mean, there's, there's a couple of notes. And oh, oh just yeah. And 
I think there's a line in that third novella about them not having names, so only identified as numbers. numbers. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> See, that's part of the joy of Gene Wolfe. It's just awesome, man, mm-hmm. just to discover this stuff. But, but Jesse, just in a nutshell, uh, John Marsh was picked up by the police immediately upon leaving. Uh, when he left in this st- first story, he was mm-hmm. picked up by the police and uh, put in jail. I, so. I I think there's there's more there's more to unlock. There's a lot more to unlock. Um, one of the combinations I think uh, is the address of the house. Six 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 Sultanbeek is the name of the the address, right? Yeah. Um. So the Sultanbeek is from Italian for saltare jump and banco for bench. Um, and another way of thinking about that is uh, a stage or a platform. So to jump up on the stage, maybe. Um, yeah, and that fits in with the Cerberus guarding the door, right? It, As well, it fits yeah. in with Cerberus guarding the door, but it uh, it's also hell, right? Yeah, yeah. Hell is the stage, but that's what Cerberus guards, is it not? It it guards, but the inside is is they perform right mm-hmm. this right. is where they have a the theater as well so the 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 fact that the kid stands guard with this um woman guard at the front gate right um and there's uh, so why what are the theories on the different theories on the title why the title is Called the fifth head of Cerberus. One is well, you know, I again, I mean, there's going to be so many different theories about this, but I, my, I'm sticking with what I feel is the most obvious thing is that the fifth head is five. Okay, but and, where's the fourth head then? Um, well, the fourth head. Let's see. So you have who do we have? We have uh, Matra. Well, it could be the the five clones, period. Okay. Um, you know, and him being the fifth one. Right. Um, that I think is what I would say. One of the one of the speculations I think that goes on <laughs> is that go on within the text. I can't remember now. So there's mm-hmm. there's if if there's the three guard dogs at the gate, uh, three headed dog at the gate. Yeah, and five actually says what he thinks, right? Right. But go ahead, yeah. So there's the three-headed dog, and then there's the female guard, or greeter, right? And then he apprentices to her mm-hmm. uh, as the next greeter, right? And when people come to the gate and he greets them, they often comment on him being uh, looking a lot like his father, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so the the dog has three heads. The woman is the fourth head and he's the fifth. I guess that's an interpretation. Well, I I think, well, yeah, that's an interpretation, but I'm pretty sure that number five said that uh, Mr. Million, Maitre, and um, his aunt were the three heads. Right. And then he said something about the maiden head. Right. Which is Um, virginity. Right. And then he said, um, well, then it would basically imply that he's the fifth one. Right. And the fifth one, it's like being outside the structure of the normal, right? So the normal thing is the three heads, right? And he's the fifth head. 
and it's like uh, sort of a projection of his feelings that he's not part of the normal structure. It's uh, it's funny that they live in a dormitory, right, with only two <laughs> occupants, um, and it's a prison in a certain sense, right? They're not allowed out. There's um, bars on the window to protect them <laughs> or to keep them from escaping, right? Um, and yet you also get a sense that maybe the, the, the door is there to prevent people coming and raping them because they are living in a brothel. Mm-hmm. Um, and when the, the five becomes this, the mad scientist creating, uh, and destroying life in his, his laboratory, um, it and he does that from a young age. Yeah. Um, what after age seven, right? Something like that, and before. Uh, yeah, it's it's not too long after age seven. He talks about he's got his own lab and he's doing this and that. It's like so, so suddenly all of a sudden he's a mad scientist. It's like wait what? Mm-hmm. And um, I heard some theory on the Alizabo Soup uh, podcast about how the robot. Um, what the reason the robot was always taking them to the slave market for? Did you guys hear that? I, I didn't hear it, so tell us what the theory is. So the robot is Mr. Millions is is perhaps uh, a kind of another copy of of uh, our progenitor. Yeah, uh, right. So the great grandfather. Right. Right. And mm-hmm. either, you know, a download... And I that. don't think that that's arguable. I think that's given to us in the story. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but w- whether that that's a... As uh, William Gibson uh, would put it, a ROM. <laughs> I, I, I agree. Yeah. As I said that, I realized, you know, yeah. We're, or, we're talking about reliability of information here, and we don't know. Right. And that's where the fantasy science fiction elements... Right. I mean, that's, that's why the, the question of who's an abo is important uh is because the answer is not well it's not given here and i don't it sounds like it's not going to be given in any other ones although interpretations allow for various answers um there isn't one definitive one um the fact that the father or the the progenitor the copy the oldest version of all of them the robot protector robot tutor robot uh with seemingly no emotions keeps going to the market is to have the uh, emotional <clears throat> reaction of seeing himself enslaved um, mm. which is interesting um, and very uh, Christopher Nolan you know uh-huh. uh, if you think about Memento right like what what the motivation what the purpose of life is right there it's not to read books and write books um, and if Gene Wolfe is the name of five <laughs> it unlocks a lot more in in thinking about what what these two planets are about and that they one is a mirror of the other and one is a mirror of hell and one is a mirror of earth um there's a, a ton going on and um <laughs> I'm, I'm not I, I, i'm not sure that there's any one way of of telling the story that doesn't exclude a ton of other ways of telling it so if you wanted to say here's what's going on 
that would be one one way of writing this story summary or mm-hmm. perhaps and then if you in choosing those points to touch on you kind of have to write a different one with the exclusion uh, by excluding other points so what is the metaphor of the stage um if it because it, it doesn't fit perfectly with any of the other stories uh of interpretation i don't think why why is the stage stuff in there well the stage stuff implies that you're uh displaying something to folks and there's a bunch of stuff going on backstage yep so that that's something it does which is exactly what's happening in uh in his case cuz yep. i don't know uh, there there's again I, I apologize because i don't know for sure if this is in a different novella but there was a point at which there's some um, well it has to be in the third because of the it's a police officer but the police say we know very well what he's doing so something that marsh says um you know while he's being interrogated um the, the police say that they know what's going on so whether they actually do or not i don't know but but it does seem to be a facade uh and then behind the scenes he's doing this experimentation stuff mm-hmm what, what what about the the name of the house? It's uh, la maison mm-hmm. de chien, right? The house, of which the is dog. house of the dog, right? House, yeah. of, house the dog. of the dog. Yeah. Um, who is the again? Dog? If his last name is Wolf, I mean that's explained. Yeah. Well, that that I think that that's definitely to be played up. But um, a dog is you know it's also a um, it's also a derogatory term. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you call someone a dog. Um, their sort of base and primal. Um, it's a sexual position. There's all sorts of different uh, w- like ways of running it. But ultimately, uh, I think that that Vale's hypothesis question and the way that the they answer it. What is the per- there was a really nice line about. Uh, what the purpose of, or the significance of the stone tools that are actually plastic? Well, was it David who said it, or is it V who says, or Five? I should say, not V. That's a different book. Um, <laughs> although, notice uh, John V. Marsh. <laughs> oh, yeah. the fifth. There we go again. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and Marsh, as in Mars, maybe. Mm. Okay, so uh, thinking about what the was it david or is it uh five who says um that the significance of the stone tools is overblown because those are the only thing that are left over what they really valued was not the stone tools but rather the culture and then the kid confabulates the culture yeah that's david david okay so david's actually i mean in a sense he's he's a lot smarter than his brother am i wrong about that I think I think they're complementary. I don't think they're necessarily smarter than the other. They wiser, have their perhaps, specialties. is the word. Because when when they're in competition, right? Uh, David's always reading Odysseus. He's always yes. Um, high, he's 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 in, he will do the competition, but he doesn't seem to work as hard at it. Um, and he's also a lot simpler when when the when um, 
five asks when our father uh, uh, interviews you, what does he call you? And he says, David, right? Mm. Rather than, I will let you choose your own name. Um, <laughs> so he's, he manages to escape all the, the traps that five can't es- escape, or the fifth can't escape, right? So right. he, and, and the fact that he's reading the Odysseus, um, and uh, and mm-hmm. the, what what's the part that he's specifically reading? He's reading the Polyphemus, right? The oh. the Cyclops, the great Cyclops. one-eyed monster, right? Um, and that's the story of don't give your name. Remember? Yes, I am no man. Right, that's the wise thing to do. And of course, David does give his name to his father. And the other guy lets him choose. He, he says, you can choose your own name. And if you don't, I'll call you five. Um, there's a lot going on in, in the fact that, you know, uh, again, readers, one thing we know about them is they like to read. <laughs> um, and so the, the intertextual references, the things that, uh, uh, what's his name? Borges does and Lovecraft, where you've got, you drop the names of some books. Um, it does a lot of heavy lifting. The Werner Vinge, um, uh telling us that science fiction exists in this universe, right? Which mm-hmm. is something you yeah. don't usually see in science fiction. Is a <laughs> shelf full of science fiction books. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you do, it tends to be like in jokey science fiction. And this is not jokey science fiction. It kind of makes it feel like more like fantasy, as well. There's there's something very interesting in that. David, he goes through the exact same experiences as his brother, but he he doesn't end up trapped in the same circumstances. Agreed, yeah. And and part of the play of why that happens is explicitly stated as, you know, how much of it is nurture and how much of it is nature. Mm -hmm. And this is the Greek answer is always, it's all fate, right? You can't escape it. No matter how much you fight against your fate, that just puts you right smack dab in the middle of the plans of fate. Um, there's something something interesting going on there because mm-hmm. five is ultimately doomed in a Sisyphean way, Sisyphean <laughs> way, yeah, right, yeah. to to sort of fall into the same trap as his father. I don't know if yeah. his father ended up in prison, but he's, his his great grandfather or great great grandfather certainly ended up in a metal prison of a certain kind. Yeah, here uh, I'd like to read this paragraph if I Go could. I think it feeds into what you're saying. Okay. Um, so this is uh, Maitre speaking, um, the the father, right? I seek self knowledge. If you want to put it this way, we seek self knowledge. You are here because I did and do. And I am here because the individual behind me did, who was himself originated by the one whose mind is simulated in Mr. Million. And one of the questions whose answers we seek is why we seek. But there is more than that. He leaned forward and the little ape lifted its white muzzle and Mm. bright, bewildered eyes to stare into his face. We wish to discover why we fail, why others rise and change, and we remain here. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I forgot about the monkey. Yeah. Um, another uh, reflection, right? Right. Uh, I like to. I like to. One of the reasons I 
after I realized that I'm not reading the whole book, one of the things I thought was, I like that we never get to go to that other planet. Um, because it allows for... It's like the other side of the mirror, the mirror world that you can't go to, right? Mm. Um, we we know what the... We can look into the mirror world, but to step through the looking glass is to find out what's there. Um, so do we go to the other worlds in the uh, in the subsequent novellas? We yes. do, we do, we yeah. do. And the, the second novella, and this is one of the reasons why I love novella, the second novella is done as a myth or a fairy tale set on that other world. So it is like stepping through the other through the looking glass, basically seeing the life of basically an Aborigine basically going on a quest of manhood. And in yeah, the third, yeah. and the third novella kind of weaves it all together because we have Marsh who's gone out into the wilderness trying to find evidence of the Abos on St. Anne because he's, he's been in more civilized places and he's trying to connect with that world of myth and legend and that, Myth of the world of myth and legend eventually, well, swallows him. He he wants to uh, uh, meet an actual Aborigine, mm-hmm. right? So he that's his quest. But I so I would say that uh, the second novella is written by like a contemporary about the years right before colonization happened, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then um, then comes. Uh, Fifth Head of Cerberus is something like a hundred years after colonization. And then the third novella, which is called VRT, is after some, not very long after uh, um, the, the end Fifth of Fifth Head, Head Cerberus, yeah. Right. Uh, uh, thinking about the father, uh, calling him the, the father, that's not his title, right? It, it's Maitre. Yeah, Maitre, that's right. Which, I, I called him the father, but right, Maitre is his title. He's uh, never called father as long as I, as far as I remember. Yeah, so, yeah. well, we're calling him that, but that's not mm-hmm. really what his his name is. And the text is is the only thing that really matters. Maitre, mm-hmm. now that I think about it, means head, like uh, head of a hotel or head of head of head uh, waiter. Yeah, or uh-huh. that, that feeds into me believing that all five clones are the five heads. Right. I, well, I think you're supposed to believe that, but you're also mm. you're also supposed to be able to interpret it another way. I think this is this is what's so cool about um, this book is because it it doesn't have only one possible interpretation, and this is actually I think uh, you know what uh, I, I I only read the first book in the Song of Ice and Fire series, right? It's not finished mm-hmm. yet, right? We still got a couple more books to go. Is that correct? That's correct. He, it, it, yes, it, he hasn't finished uh, the series by a long shot. So the, there's the, a the, ton the, of theories going. And people are, you know, well, and there's also the the TV shows run ahead of the books. So oh, is it okay? Yeah. All right. So the question is, how much will the books actually match what we see on screen or not? But the the theories that people come up with, you know, this is going to happen or that's going to happen. Right. Um, this is going to be how it plays out. Um, what's What's cool about it is um, is I don't know I don't know if Martin knows. I think he has certain plans, but um, in thinking about what I don't think we ever get a complete picture. I, I, I again I have only read the first book, 
um, so I can't say. But w what I've what I've heard him say when people uh, spin their theories out is the same thing that Gene Wolfe apparently always said when people spin their theories out about his stories, right? He just says interesting. <laughs> he doesn't he doesn't say, yeah. oh yes, I was thinking of this and blah 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 blah. He never actually tells you what 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 bones were put into the soup that uh -huh. made the thing appear the way it did and you, so you don't know how the meal is going to digest uh, in a certain <laughs> sense um, until you know you've gone through the whole thing. Here, I would say it's designed to be um, a very complex set of flavors that, you know, at <laughs> some points you're going to taste the anise and others you're going to taste the, the bacon. And the beans cool. are, uh, are of a mixed variety, not one kind. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's a very hearty, hearty meal. I agree. Um, I've got something that I was hoping to be able to to read from. Um, I have an article called "How to Read Gene Wolfe" mm, by Neil good. Gaiman. By Neil oh, Gaiman. Perfect. Oh, really? And uh, so, yeah, he he put it in his book, uh, "The View from the Cheap Seats." Mm -hmm. um, but if you don't mind, I'll read it. There's Please. nine nine things that he listed. Okay. Okay. How to read Gene Wolfe? Number one, trust the text implicitly. The answers are in there. Sounds right. Number two. Number two, do not trust the text farther than you can throw it, if that far. It's tricksy and desperate stuff, and it may go off in your hand at any time. <laughs> okay. Number three, reread. It is better the second time. It will be even better the third time. And anyway, the books will subtly reshape themselves while you are away from them. Peace really was a gentle Midwestern memoir the first time I read it. It only became a horror novel on the second or third reading. Nice. Nice. Yeah. Number four, there are wolves in there prowling behind the words. Mm. Sometimes they come out in the pages. Sometimes they wait until you close the book. The musky wolf smell can sometimes be masked by the aromatic scent of rosemary. Understand, these are not today wolves slinking grayly in packs through deserted places. These are the dire wolves of old, huge and solitary wolves that could stand their ground against grizzlies. Mm-hmm. That's that's that exactly goes back to that George R. R. Martin thing, right? The, yeah, it does. The way that huh? dogs always stand mm -hmm. in, and you know, uh, thinking about how I'm sure this is in one of the books, uh, how the red woman and the religion plays out, like the the prophecies. Alessandra, yeah, yeah, the prophecies always come. You know, whatever she predicts always comes true. It's just she didn't quite uh, see the whole vision, right? So mm -hmm. when she uses King's blood, it does it does the trick, but uh, there's some unforeseen circumstances, mm -hmm. and and we think of her as sort of the evil manipulator, but she she's a victim of her own witchery in a certain sense. Um, mm -hmm. And the the do how the dogs right when the dog is killed, uh, that's a sign for something. When uh, a uh, a dog appears, that's a sign for something. Or a, a dire wolf appears, right? It's it's very uh, it's it's this is what uh, uh, years and years ago I don't think either of you were on this podcast I did a, a deep analysis of the opening credits of the Game of Thrones um, television series and how it was a metaphor for um, 
both the 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 TV show, the book, and uh, reading in general. Um, you guys, you've seen the opening credits, I'm sure, a million times, yeah. right? Uh-huh. Well, sure. I, I don't watch the show. I've seen it a few times, but yeah. Well, it's it's yep. got you know a flyover over Westeros uh-huh. and Essos. It's a map or something. Yeah, yeah, right. it's over a map. Right. But, yeah, so it's not really a map because one of the things you'll notice is as the the flyover happens, is it's an orrery, except it's an inverse orrery in which the the surface of the planet is um, a Dyson sphere, and then in the center is the sun, which is uh, also the Game of Thrones logo ultimately, right? And as we zoom in to different places, there are these lenses that come over the screen to mm-hmm. sort of zoom us in and zoom us out. Um, and as the uh, panning happens and we fly over the places that we're about to visit in, in the particular episode, you know, King's Landing or uh, whatever, Marine or whatever the name of the places that are going to get visited, the wall, right? those places uh, mechanistically come up in a sort of a geared mechanism. Um, Like somebody is (laughs) behind the scenes, right? As we view the screen, somebody behind the scenes is cranking away on an old-fashioned orrery to make everything move. Um, All the cities come, you know, up, their pyramids go up, the towers unfold in a clockwork-like fashion. And then... If you watch it fairly carefully, whenever events happen in the plot, uh, like uh, what's the name of the Starks holding? What's the Stark Castle called? Winterfell. Winter, Winter, Winterfell. Yeah. Right. Winterfell. When Winterfell is um, taken by the the flayed man guys, um, the the city or the their castle burns. And the smoke comes up mechanistically, right? So that everything is being run in the background, underneath, and all we're seeing is the surface elements. It's a it's a really nice metaphor for what what the process of of creating this world, right? That George R. R. Martin's created, or in the in the context of of how I originally posited this explanation. Um, was for a Lord Dunsany story called uh, The Window, which is about a man who buys a window in the marketplace in London through which he can see another world. Um, and he puts it, the window on his wall in his in his house or his apartment and you know goes to his job at the bookstore. And when he comes home, he just stares out the window, which is over a city called, he calls... Uh, golden dragon city right looking out through this window he experiences another world but can't participate in it the story ends with uh broken glass and the man uh mysteriously dead um but the important part is is that in all the mechanisms that are going on underneath the surface to create this this uh, very rich, rich soup of a story. We're actually getting all of those uh, interpretations that, or ways of reading. Uh, I'm sorry, I took us off track, but that's exactly why it's so rich and and why these different methods and expect uh, things to bear in mind or techniques to approach it. 
are are useful by Neil Gaiman, I think. Keep going. I'm sorry to no, derail. No <laughs> interesting stuff. That story is interesting. Okay, I think we were on number five. Um, reading Gene Wolfe is dangerous work. It's a knife-throwing act, and like all good knife-throwing acts, you may lose fingers, toes, earlobes, or eyes in the process. Gene doesn't mind. Gene is throwing the knives. <laughs> Number six, make yourself comfortable. Pour a pot of tea. Hang up a do not disturb sign. Start at page one. And number seven, there are two kinds of clever writer. The ones that point out how clever they are mm. and the ones who see no need to point out how clever they are. Gene Wolfe is of the second kind and the intelligence is less important than the tale. He is not smart to make you feel stupid. He is smart to make you smart as well. I read an yeah. uh, uh, interview with him for this. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, the interviewer uh, asked him a question about intelligence and why, you know, uh, what what he thought about it or something to that effect. And he said, um, I think, didn't Gene Wolfe fight in, uh, in the Korean War? I think he did. Um, uh, not certain. Yeah, I'm pretty sure he did. And he said one of the things that um, he said that I'm uh, what the military is good for is to show you that you're not smart. And the interviewer said, "But you are, but but you are smart." And he says, "No, I'm not." Uh, which I thought was really in is like emphatically, like with a big capital, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the idea that. If you once you start, you think you're smart. That's when they get you, right? And I think he sort of implied. He again, the interview was very much like reading Gene Wolfe. <laughs> uh, he um, doesn't he doesn't fully explain it, but he said something to the line along the lines of, um, "Getting killed shows that you're not smart." Um, mm. And uh, as soon as you think you are smart, that's when you get killed. Right. Because when yeah. in in battle, right, <laughs> you uh, if once you start, you think everything's cool. I know how to run this. <laughs> That's when you're in deep deep trouble. Mm-hmm. Um, and so yeah, I I think that 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 fits really well with um, everybody everybody knows reading this that he's incredibly clever and and intelligent. It's so well crafted. Um, but it's also um, it doesn't make the mistake of telling you how smart it is it shows you right mm-hmm. I think absolutely it's really important because it uh, it's even, even I think it's even more strong like when, from Borges you walk away like oh I'm a much more literary man right mm-hmm. here um, you can see that it's it's almost metafiction and that it's about the, the love of writing uh, even more than it is with Borges. I don't. Mm. I don't know if you guys felt that, but I certainly. I thought that. Um, mm. Whereas G- George R. R. Martin is more. Um, I I want to tell a big story. This is more like storytelling is really interesting and it's a good vehicle for for exploring storytelling or something like that. <laughs> I'm not sure what what's going on there, but it, yeah, it, I guess know, part of it, but yeah, but it, it hit me in other ways as well. It wasn't just that to me. It was, uh, uh, much more than that. Well, just think that was about, part of it. Just think about how like ethereal almost all, or, uh, Jorge Luis Borges stuff is and mm-hmm. how, um, 
gossamer. That's, that's yeah, the edge of yeah. But it, it's like it's like it, whether how it connects to us is very um, uh, sort of not really important uh, as much as it it's almost can live without us. You know that book can be smart sitting on the shelf without us reading it. Um, and George R. R. Martin's stuff is more like visceral, meant to be read. And it's it's a story being spun, right? It's the yarn itself. Um, yeah. It's the, and the, and this one is somewhere in the middle. Um, it 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 needs interpretation. Um, it, it needs, needs us. I, I, I would say it needs multiple interpretations. Yeah, but it uh, needs us more than the the like. It needs us way more than Jorge Luis it, it, Borges does. Yeah, it, 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 it needs readers to interpret it and basically finish that combination and unlock it. And I would argue it needs multiple readers to unlock it in different ways to mm-hmm. be a successful Gene Wolfe story. A Gene Wolfe story that only has one interpretation. I'm trying to think of one, and it's hard. But a theoretical Gene Wolfe story that only has one interpretation is, in my opinion, a failed Gene Wolfe story. Mm. The idea that... I mean, just just our discussion here, who are the five heads of Cerebus alone, there are multiple ways you can count them, is a testament that there are many angles to look at a Gene Wolfe story, and there should be, because that's his, for lack of a better word, brand. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's yeah. what makes well, him the writer he is, obviously. You guys, uh, have you ever read Stanislaw Lem? Yes. Yes. Um, there's one one that leaps to mind. He used to write uh, reviews of fake books. Right. Yes. And uh, one of the things that he wrote that I really liked was called One Human Minute. And in that book, he wrote a review of a book that captured one minute on the planet Earth and the experience of everybody on Earth <laughs> and during that one minute. And it was a review of that book. <laughs> really cool. Good stuff. Uh, we was, interrupted you again. That's okay. There's I'm only two left, and they're very I'm short. I'm going to digress from your digression just for a minute. Oh, this is good. Uh, I had a really uh, cute thought the other day. Um, it, maybe we're, we're doing sort of education wrong, and maybe we shouldn't classify uh, the you know different departments at universities in the way that we do, or like at high school or elementary school, all that. Instead of studying you know subjects, like you go study math or you study uh italian or whatever it is um rather you just do it by decade (laughs) so you have a (laughs) professor of 1920s right and a professor (laughs) of 1830 right (laughs) basically they just focus on that one area and then when you want to have a uh sort of more broad education you 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 get a a bunch of different like just i just I, i i i found this by if you go to like um I, the Wikipedia entry for 1908, I, mm-hmm. I was like, oh, I've read this story. It's from 1908. What was happening in 1908? I couldn't think of any one thing that happened in 1908. Um, and then when I read the Wikipedia entry for 1908, I like suddenly understood a whole lot of a whole lot about the world I live in today just by reading that 1908, like what people were obsessed with then and what they're obsessed with now. It's when, when you read in... 100 years the wikipedia entry for 2017 um it won't only consist of trump 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 it will consist of a whole bunch of other things um but we just didn't see it so can can you guys think of any one thing that happened in 1908 offhand um i'd have i'd have to go wikipedia yeah i'd have to look it up yeah right but 
big one, Tunguska event, right? I'm like, oh, oh yeah, of course, oh, yeah. everybody knew that, right? Of course, mm-hmm. so important. Um, you know, there was this, an assassination of a, a of a diplomat in San Francisco, who like he he said something really rude about the Korean people. Uh, during their occupation uh, by the Japanese, he was working for the Japanese government, American diplomat. And they, uh, when he arrived in port after they found out, you know, the wire service came, he they assassinated him or tried to assassinate him. And then mm-hmm. they he didn't successfully assassinate him, so they assassinated him again after after that <laughs> after he. The newspapers came to him again and said, what do you think about this assassination attempt? He said, well, you know, that's how those children are, or something like that. And I was like, wow, we complain <laughs> about racism now. But it's <laughs> like, well, you can see why, you you know, people get assassinated when they say things like that. Um, just the, the, the very fact that we can go so deep on a crazy little thing. That's how this feels. Like, you can go super deep in such a short... Like that's kind of also why I wanted to only do the novella, is that there's so much just in here. I thought it might get swamped uh, by the other stuff. Well, there's no arguing that. I mean, yeah. you know, we, we we keep bringing up details from the other two, but the other two are just as vague and and right. uh, and uh, full of things to talk about as this one. I, I was thinking that it might end up be like just let's do a show about Gene Wolfe, and then the problem with that is that no matter how much detail we went into, it wouldn't be enough. Yeah, yeah, that that'd be a five-hour podcast at, at, sure. at the very least, and it wouldn't get on. You know, uh, that, that's what the Al Zabo Soup podcast is, right? It's just yeah. not. Yeah, um, it it wouldn't be fair. I think. I'm sorry, okay. we haven't gotten through that list yet. How, no problem. No, yeah, we we've only got eight and nine. Only two left. Okay. So number eight is he was there. He saw it happen. He knows whose reflection they saw in the mirror that night. Mm. And then number nine is be willing to learn. And then I thought uh, he, he just had some uh, recommendations, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and I thought that I would read, because one of his recommendations was The Fifth Head. Okay. Uh, so. As an entry text for Wolf, you mean? Um, yeah, exactly. So uh, as far as short stories goes, he, he, he recommends that you start with his first um, short story collection, which is called The Island of Dr. Death and Other Stories and Other Stories. Yeah, I've heard you <laughs> recommend that to me. Yeah. It's a good, good story. Yeah, it's it's powerful. Okay, but then one of the novels that he recommends, so he does put this in the novels uh, section, he recommends Peace, The Fifth Head of Cerberus, The Wizard Knight, and then The Book of the New Sun, of course. Um, oops. Can I hear number eight again? Excuse me? On, on oh, number eight of... again? Yes. Yeah. Number eight was, he was there, he saw it happen, he knows whose reflection they saw in the mirror that night. I want, I want some interpret. I need some Gene Wolfe style interpretation on that. One. <laughs> I think he's saying that he knew what he was doing. Yeah, but he won't tell. Yeah, possibly not. But he he knew exactly what he was doing when yeah. he wrote it. Yeah, and they're questioning that if you know that he, he didn't know what he was doing is not valid. Is what yeah, he's it's, saying. Yeah, it's yeah, it's. It, Every every once in a while, I have a theory. You know, the only reason this works is 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 a confluence of events, right? <laughs> it just so happened that they didn't screw it up somehow, and and they rolled the dice and got got a what a two d two d twenty and a roll. What's a critical hit? Something like that, right? Some yeah. some complete 
uh, useless uh, otherwise writer some, somehow accidentally stumbled upon a perfect thing and it worked. Um, gotcha. But the problem with that theory uh, with Gene Wolfe is it, you can't roll the dice that many times in, <laughs> yeah. uh, unless you're cheating, right? He just right? keeps doing it. Yeah, so exactly. clearly... So yeah, so, yeah go ahead. No, I was just going to say, clearly he can't be... It, it, it's it's not an accident. I think that maybe right. that's the interpretation there. Agreed. None of it is accident. You bet. Okay, so of the fifth head of Cerberus, he says this. Technically, the fifth head of Cerberus isn't exactly a novel. It's three novellas set in the same milieu. Uh-huh. Each tells its own story, but they supplement, contradict, and comment on each other in ways that make the whole much, much larger than its parts. Hmm. The only thing like it in traditional literature is Faulkner's The Sound and the Fury. But the fifth head of Cerberus otherwise owes much more to Proust than to Faulkner. On a pair of colony worlds, the various narrators confront questions of identity at every level, from the personal to the species. And the questions are very, very disturbing. Yeah, that's, that's what a... Yeah, Gaiman but, says. You know that Gaiman is a really good writer. He should try writing some fiction of his own. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? I, I really like Neil Gaiman, but I think he is actually... I think he's actually even better as a uh, a pointer to other great writers because I mean he is really good. But um, uh, Stan, every, I, I think most people agree that Sandman is his best work. Um, and yet the first volume of Sandman's not that easy to get into. It's pretty hard, in fact. Um, but I've still got Sandman's to read if you can believe it. Wow, you're lucky. So well, there, there's, 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 there's a few new ones. You know, there's been a few new ones since that they've come out as well yeah. and i haven't read all of the more yeah. recent ones but um the thing is is he he's always been a really even before he was a fiction writer right he's always been a a really good guy to follow the reading of because you know he was he wrote a book about douglas adams while douglas adams was still alive yeah. um you know and and not when douglas adams was as big as he became um he was always pointing to uh, other people's writings and and saying look at this isn't this amazing right his essays about Edgar Allan Poe are you know better than almost any like he I think he's an even better nonfiction writer than he is a fiction writer and he's a great fiction writer yeah I've got the the cheap seats or the view from the cheap seats on audio and I'm not finished with it yet I listen to it every now and then a book of essays I, I love it? it yeah it's a book of essays yeah nice. Yeah, I mean, he wrote a. Um, I wonder if that's in there. Um, he wrote a a mini essay about libraries that was yes. found in SimCity 2000. Inside the game, you click on the library, and there was like a little button on there. Oh, really? Oh, I didn't know yeah. that. Yeah, and it was like but libraries he, are like this, and then like, wow. <laughs> He did. There was an essay in there about libraries that I, I did hear. I, I, I wonder great. if that's what, what if it's a reproduction of that because it yeah. was. Um, I mean that that little Easter egg made made every time a library popped up in your Sim City. I I had to I, I I had not to not to say I didn't believe you, Jesse. But we've been reading Gene Wolfe and people can get lost. <laughs> But I, I had to I had to Google to see if this is true, and I uh-huh. found on Wikipedia another new addition in SimCity 2000 is the query tool. Tool using the cool tool tiles reveals, reveals information such as structure, name, type, attitude, and land value. Querying a library and ruminate. selecting That's, ruminate yes. displays an essay written by Neil Gaiman. Damn. Yeah. 
I never found that. It's I, really I short. It definitely, it. yeah. It's. I'm looking at the contents now of a view from the cheap seats, and uh, there's uh, an entry that just says SimCity. I've got. I've got it here. Uh, cool. It's on Reddit. Somebody collected it. Ruminate by Neil Gaiman. Cities are not people, but like people, cities have their own. Uh, yeah, I, I'm remembering it wrong. It was about. It wasn't about libraries. It was about cities, but it was in the library of the. Game SimCity Sim 2000. Mm-hmm. Cities are not people, but like people, cities have their own personalities. In some cases, one city has many different personalities. There are a dozen Londons, a crowd of different New Yorks. A city is a collection of lives and buildings, and it has identity and personality. Cities exist in location and in time. There are good cities, the ones that welcome you, that seem to care about you, that seem pleased you're in them. There are indifferent cities, the ones that honestly don't care if you're there or not. Cities with their own agendas, the ones that ignore people. There are cities gone bad, and there are places in otherwise healthy cities as rotten and maggoty as the windfall apples. There are even cities that seem lost, some lacking a center, feel like they would be happier being elsewhere, somewhere smaller, somewhere easier to understand. Some cities spread like cancers or B-movie slime monsters, devouring all in their way, absorbing towns and villages, swallowing boroughs and hamlets, transmuting into boundless cornerberations. Wow. Other cities shrink. Once prosperous areas empty and fail, buildings empty, windows are boarded up, people leave, and sometimes they cannot even tell you why. Occasionally, I idle time away by wondering what cities would be like were they people. Manhattan is in my head, fast-talking, untrusting, well-dressed, but unshaven. London is huge and confused. Paris is elegant and attractive, older than she looks. San Francisco is crazy, but harmless and very friendly. It's a foolish game. Cities aren't people. Cities exist in location, and they exist in time. Cities accumulate their personality as, as time goes by. Manhattan remembers when it was... Unfashionable farmland. Athens remembers the days when there were those who considered themselves Athenians. There are cities that remember being villages. Other cities, currently bland, devoid of personality, are prepared to wait until they have history. Few cities are proud. They know that it is too often a happy accident, a mere geographical fluke that they exist at all. A wide harbor, a mountain pass, the confluence of two rivers. At present, cities stay where they are. For now, cities sleep. But there are rumblings, things change, and what if tomorrow cities woke and went walking? If Tokyo engulfed your town? If Vienna came striding over the hill towards you? If the city you inhabit today just upped and left and woke, and you woke tomorrow wrapped in a thin blanket of an empty plain where Detroit's once stood? Or Sydney or Moscow? Don't ever take a city for granted. After all, it's bigger than you are, it's older, and it has learned how to wait. Mm-hmm. Oh my god! Um- there's a it actually it's been made into a movie and the movie's coming out. Have either of you guys read Philip Reeve? No. Philip um, Reeve, no. He he's he's he wrote a trio of novels called The Hungry City Chronicles, which is far future apocalyptic where cities basically pick themselves up and start traveling along fighting other cities and so the people there basically will conquer another city, get its resources so they can survive. So the, the novel starts with London chasing this tiny city across the desert to basically uh-huh. consume its resources. It, they're, they're awesome novels, and this is exactly – I'm pretty sure Gaiman had to have known it because Reeve is a, uh, an English writer. So he must have had that in the back of his mind when he wrote this, wrote this uh, little story. I, I, there's also a, um, a 
pretty sure there's a story in uh, the Greg Bear collection called The Wind from a Burning Woman that has a, uh, a city come a walking sort of idea. It's it's pretty cool. It's That's, also um, yeah, surprising that, uh, that Gene Wolfe himself hasn't taken this idea himself. But dang it, <laughs> he's got so many other ideas. I guess he can just leave this for others. <laughs> Absolutely. But... Yep, but as as we said before, I think yeah, this novella just we could keep burrowing on endlessly into just this one story and trying to take it apart and see what it means and just to talk about things like how 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 stately the world building goes. I mean, it, it takes a little while for you to realize that a you're on a colony planet and b that there are slaves and c that that this is because the novel starts off feeling like it's like. 18th, 19th century Earth, yeah, it's, it's and it just slowly starts. The the, the science fiction will slowly start showing up robots and slaves and this thing hanging in the sky. And it's like, oh no, we're in the future somewhere else. How cool! Yeah, I I, I was like, this is Lankmar, right? This is what I, I loved about. Uh, there was a Dungeons and Dragons expansion that was. Uh, Fritz Leiber's uh, Fafford and the Grey Mauser, I think yep. it might have been what it was mm. called. And it came with a giant map of the city of Lankmar. I, 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 I own that module. I own that map. Listeners who know my love of cartography and stuff will not be surprised. I wish I still had it. I lost it years ago. The great thing about this story is it feels like it. It's it's one of the, you know, looking at that map and you see all of these buildings, right? All of these places to have adventure, right? And my favorite part of Dungeons and Dragons was not the caves and the, and the, um, I don't know, the dungeons. It was actually the cities, right? Ah. Where people, instead of, uh, you know, you start in the tavern and leave the city and go off into the country to kill goblins or whatever, you you stay in the tavern, you get into a bar fight with somebody, and that leads to a city adventure. It was much more interesting to me because cities are much richer because behind every, you know every three steps there's another door and behind every door is another potential story and here we've got you know one street we get a, just a tiny little slice of that lankmar in the same way that you know you feel like when you're reading a i don't know a um yeah jorge luis borges story you're just getting a tiny little slice of some little thought and you get it fully expanded. Here, it's like stepping in behind one of those doors. It's a, and it, and sadly, you know, the Fritz Fritz Leiber's not as good as I want him to be. I want him to be a lot better than he is, and he's good. But he's, just the potential of what he created, I think, was even greater than what he what he literally created. Um, some really good writing in there, but it's not like this. This is like, yeah, it's just like next level stuff, right? Yeah. Sadly and tragically, for some reason I cannot understand, Gene Wolfe has never won a Hugo. I well, don't get it. There's there's <laughs> no justice. Don't you get that? <laughs> I, I there is no there is no justice. I mean, he's won a Nebula. He's won World Fantasy. To he's won Prince the Locus Justin, Award. Uh, yeah. Uh, to quote Prince Justin, who always quotes it out himself, uh, "You know nothing." Who's <laughs> 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 quoting? Mm. Uh, a line from George R. R. Martin. It's uh, <laughs> you know nothing, Prince Justin. Uh, 
I that's do not. the the Hugo's have very little to do with you know. I know great writings. It's, I, I I know it's I know it has nothing to do with what's the best. But novel. you can see you can see why uh, he would would have got the Nebula because uh, that's a bunch of writers saying who's who's our best writer who's our best writer, and then they you know sometimes it's you know he hasn't got one in a, he hasn't hasn't got one he hasn't deserved you know he it's his turn that sort of thing, but ultimately sometimes the text just proves that you know. There's nobody better, and obviously that would be here. I mean, I don't know that this one's one specifically, but um, it would have to. Yeah, this is this is one of his earliest works as well. This is this is early. I yeah. I mean, I think I think New Sun is where Gene Wolfe hits on every possible cylinder and then some. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to going through that with the Alzebo Soup podcast. However, they decide to do it. I'll, I'll be with them because it'll be fun. It'll take. It'll take. I. I mean, I think they could actually take an entire year just going through that. Probably just could. Going through, going through the four, much less the five, and then mm-hmm. once you have that, then you have the uh, the long sun. Yeah. Yeah, the short yeah. sun and the long sun, right? Yeah, and and then yeah, I mean, Gene, Gene, Gene Wolf is like this novella. The deeper you go into his work, the deeper it gets. Mm-hmm. I I do think this is a good opener if you haven't read gene wolf before i also do like the wizard knight because it's a little it's it's more recent so the work is if anything a little more polished and it's a little more straightforward although it's a little more accessible right a little more accessible for those who haven't touched wolf before so listeners if you're if you're if you are uh, intimidated by what we talked about the fifth head of cerberus i'd go for the uh the wizard and the knight as your entry into gene wolf and, uh, my my best experiences with Gene Wolfe, uh, other than The New Sun, has been short stories. So um, there's a book out called The Best of Gene Wolfe. Um, recommend that highly. Yeah. It's kind really of uh, sad that there's no uh, official audiobook version of uh, this book. Um, the w- version I sent you guys is the Book for the Blind UK version. Oh. And I thought it, the guy did a pretty good job with it. Yeah, the uh, Audible Audible has done a audio version of the Book of the New Sun. Yeah, it's so that's available. But uh, I would love to four see of those a, are... the best of Gene Wolfe on audio would be really terrific. Yeah, <laughs> really it needs great. to be a lot more. It's um, is he still alive? Yes. yes. Okay, so I don't know what the excuse is for him not having all his stuff up available because oh. it's it's a. Uh, it's kind of crazy that it's not when so much so much much worse is so available <laughs> and and gets recommended to me by audible oh we yeah. recommend you read larry correa like no <laughs> <laughs> sorry audible hard no <laughs> seriously it's like i get these recommendations it's like why could you recommend something i want to listen to mm-hmm. so this crap <laughs> wow <laughs> Making okay, enemies I, left and right. Oh come on, he's part of the puppies. The puppies are know. my enemies already. I'm not doing any new. Well, he, any, is he a bad writer on top of being a puppy? He's oh ah oh, god, this we we're really off the wolf subject now. Um, <laughs> I think we're um, done, aren't we? <laughs> yeah, we're we're done. This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com.
You guys just listened to the audiobook? Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, I read mine. Um, I have a oh, nice. pretty cool copy. Yeah. It, um, where is it? Right here. I, I, I couldn't find my copy, which, which really annoyed me. Yeah. So it's a hardcover. Scripters. Oh, really? Yeah. Does it have a nice cover? 1972. It's the it's the cover that's shown on the Wikipedia entry. Uh, it's a dust it. jacket. Yeah. Uh, oh, that one. That's yeah. A nice, that's a nice one. That's yeah. 70s. It doesn't say first edition in it. 1971, it says. Um, well, copyright 1972. Um. Okay, so it's the some guy on a squatting over a I don't know a flower or something. And yeah. some trees in the background, and then another planet in the distance. Yeah. Okay. I need somebody to explain that cover to me. <laughs> no, no reason to. Okay. It's like I don't know, especially in the '70s, it feels like you know a lot of covers really didn't match anything that was inside. I need to be no inspired. Worries. Just hang on, I'm going to drop this acid tab. Hang on. <laughs> <laughs> Give me five minutes. Yeah.